Welcome to Cannabis Unraveled, the show where we're taking an inside look to the most relevant topics at the intersection of cannabis, science, and culture, featuring authentic perspectives from experts and enthusiasts across all aspects of the planet. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Jesse Cater, here at Cannabis Unraveled, and we have another great episode this week. Excited to introduce Dr. Scott Halperin. He is the John Eisenberg Professor of Medicine at UPenn and the founding director of Palliative Care and Advanced Illness Research, otherwise known as the Pear Center, also at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, welcome, Dr. Halperin. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So this is a this is a timely discussion today as we talk about specifically cannabis uh, as a, a therapeutic agent outside of other uses like adult use and just general wellness use. We're talking specifically about using cannabis for therapeutic outcomes. And of course, uh, it was an interesting week the last few weeks with the Department of Health and Human Services uh, announcing or making a recommendation to move cannabis from being an illegal substance to a Schedule Three compound, potentially identifying that there is potential medical value to this plant, uh, something those of us in the industry and certainly Many individuals across the country believe that there's medicinal value to this plant. Of course, at this point, we're waiting for the DEA to come back and to see where they stand on the position. But there seems to be momentum in, in moving cannabis to uh, potentially to Schedule 3, recognizing that medical value. But obviously, uh, in your line of work, you work with a lot of seriously ill individuals. So maybe you can give us a little bit of background, how you got into this and really what your specialty is and the type of uh, type of people that you serve day in, day out. Sure. Well, I'm trained uh, originally as a general medicine physician and then as a critical care or ICU physician. And throughout my career, my passion has been in navigating the sickest of the sick through the um, final stages of their lives and seeking to make whatever time they have left of maximal value uh, for them and their family caregivers. This something as an ICU physician is kind of a, a bread and butter responsibility for us. And I've seen lots of ways in which clinicians uh, either lack the training to effectively help their patients and patients' families navigate challenging decisions about the use or non-use of aggressive approaches to care and the use or non-use of palliative or comfort-oriented approaches to care. And it's really in that latter category where I realized we don't have nearly as much evidence about how to effectively palliate individuals as we do, for example, on how to titrate a mechanical ventilator to sustain oxygenation and a heartbeat. And that's how I got interested in the field of palliative care scholarship broadly and what led me to found the Pear Center in early 2017. Yeah, very interesting and, and, and very noble work. Uh, I've been through the process with loved ones in my own family and, and my wife's family have gone through this end of life uh, in palliative care, suffering from serious illness like cancer and other things. And, uh, you know, for me, the experience, depending on, you know, what hospital they're in, how quickly they get diagnosed, um, what that diagnosis uh, has made a, a huge difference in 
the amount or, or lack thereof of, of critical care they get at end of life to, to really make, if nothing else, those last days or weeks as livable and as humane as possible and giving them the experience to connect with loved ones uh, rather than just be in, you know, absolute misery in some other cases in that end of life care. So I've, I've seen that firsthand, you know, and that's where obviously we believe and many of us believe cannabis has the potential to play a role. You know, this this topic really started turning more in my brain. I was asked to, to go down to North Carolina to uh, educate uh, members of the North Carolina House uh, on cannabis. And it was interesting. One of the, the big advocates uh, for the use of medical cannabis was uh, a palliative care physician in uh, Raleigh-Durham area that broadly uses and recommends and works with their patients uh, around cannabis. And cannabis was a, a big tool that she had a lot of success with. Interestingly enough, one of the biggest uh, voices uh, in, in opposition was also a well-known physician in the area whose major pushback is how can we, how can you recommend this and work with this with the lack of clinical evidence to be able to, that we have with, with we'll say, typical prescription drugs, uh, a point well-known and well-received. So two very different perspectives. And so in your, in your role, do patients mention to you using cannabis? Is cannabis something that you've recommended or something that you've been supportive of when your patients bring it up with you? Is it something you bring up with them? What's that the conversation like as cannabis as a potential tool when you're talking to some of your patients going through critical care needs? It's actually very infrequent that it comes up in the practice for an ICU physician, right? We're talking about patients who are struggling to stay alive and on the most technologically advanced machines and pharmaceuticals to, uh, to keep them alive and get them to a place where uh, they can return to an outpatient setting and think about uh, using medical cannabis or, or any other intervention. So, uh, you know, I should be clear that my personal experience as a clinician is essentially zero around medical cannabis. By contrast, I have a longstanding interest in building the evidence base to support symptom management and goals of care conversation and other elements of palliative care. And it's very clear to me that medical cannabis is an increasingly commonly used and often clinician-recommended piece of the palliative care puzzle. And as at least one of the folks uh, you spoke with in North Carolina mentioned, you know, the state of the science supporting its use is currently just not up to snuff for what we would typically want to see as clinicians uh, before recommending the use of agents for our patients. But that really comes in, at a tension point with uh, two things. One is that it's pretty safe. We may not know a ton about its benefits, but we know pretty well that it's for example, safer than alcohol, which is a, uh, you know, obviously not medically prescribed thing, but a, a widely legal thing. And 
the addiction potential is really low. Uh, and many people have reported symptomatic relief, particularly in the domains of pain, anxiety, uh, and, and other symptoms that the seriously ill commonly endure. So my role in this and my horse in this game, if you will, really is to elevate the quality of the science around medical cannabis so that patients, family members, and clinicians can make more informed decisions. Yeah, that makes sense. And of course, uh, you're the principal investigator behind a study, of course, ongoing, no results yet, of a study to actually investigate the potential benefits of cannabis in a clinical setting for the use of uh, in, in palliative care. You want to maybe give a little a light onto what you hope to uh, examine in that study? Sure. So this is a study for which we hatched the idea five or six years ago now, uh, when it was clear that many studies had been published suggesting a role for medical cannabis in the relief of discrete symptoms such as pain. Uh, and nausea, uh, particularly chemotherapy-associated nausea. But there'd never been a study looking at overall, more holistically, the effects of medical cannabis on patients' quality of life and or their family caregivers' perceptions of the patient's quality of life. And at the end of the day, that's what the field of palliative care hopes to achieve, is maximizing quality of life in the face of serious illness. And there are multiple dimensions to having a high quality of life and in different individuals have different definitions of what it means to have a high quality of life. But I think that's really what we ought to be focused on when we're thinking about what a tool in the palliative care armamentarium ought to have evidence to speak to. So what we're doing in this trial is uh, randomly assigning, i.e. by a coin flip, patients with advanced cancers who are referred to the University of Pennsylvania's palliative and supportive oncology clinic, or PSOC. And uh, PSOC is staffed by some truly incredible uh, cancer physicians and nurse practitioners who also have tremendous expertise in delivering palliative care. And what we're doing in collaboration with that clinic is randomly assigning patients to receive free cannabis, uh, including free registration and active encouragement to use it from their clinicians uh, versus usual care in which clinicians may choose to recommend cannabis for their patients, or they may choose not to, but they're not under uh, they're not receiving any suggestion from this study. And then patients, if they are recommended for it and choose to use it, would then still have to pay the out-of-pocket costs for the card and the uh, individual products. And what we're really looking at are, you know, which approach optimizes quality of life. And then we're looking at a variety of secondary outcomes, including the potential that, for example, use of medical cannabis removal of barriers to use of medical cannabis could reduce the use of, of other therapeutics like opioids. Yeah, certainly I can say, uh, you know, one of the benefits uh, of 
working in, in a scientific realm at Cureleaf, of course, is that we have uh, over 150 cannabis retail locations around the country that serve a lot of medical patients. Uh, uniquely, Cureleaf was uh, founded in a medical market and grew through the medical cannabis system. And though what we do serve medical and adult use today, Cureleaf has historically served the majority of medical markets. And so we've worked with a lot of medical patients uh, in the state regulated system that we serve today. And so, you know, that's, uh, we, we get a tremendous amount of feedback from our patients on what's working, what's not working. This area of uh, one of the areas that uh, we've had a lot of uh, response and positive response is, uh, frankly, patients that have had difficulty with other pain medications, particularly opioids, causing them problems. And obviously, everyone's different. Some people seem to be able to use them effectively and as prescribed. Other people find them more challenging. But certainly, we know uh, most folks are aware of the epidemic, the opioid epidemic in the country. And we have had a lot of, at least from that anecdotal feedback perspective, a lot of patients claiming that they've been able to transition to cannabis and and in some cases reduce the amount of opioids they consume in other cases completely get, remove opioids from their regimen and and subside those with cannabinoids which which I, I agree with have a much higher safety profile certainly compared to some of these other other compounds brings up an interesting question you know obviously pharmaceutical drugs go through a very rigorous and lengthy process to come to market right there are an individual typically molecule, that goes through extensive multiple rounds of, of lengthy testing, development, preclinical, and then multiple phases of clinical testing to come to market. Um, and they're designed to treat a very specific disease state. But then you also, you know, particularly in this day and age, we see a lot of cannabis aside, a lot of natural therapies, whether it's vitamins and supplements and natural remedies. As a physician, do you believe that that some of these natural remedies, vitamins and supplement products have benefits? Is that something that you see a lot of your palliative care patients taking? Is that something that you physicians typically advise on? Or where does that fit in? Where do you work inside of the, the non-pharmaceutical tools like supplements and vitamins or other natural remedies that some of them may have real benefit potentially and, and, and science supporting them. How does that fit in with on top of just the pharmaceutical tools at your disposal? Well, I think, you know, what you let off with, Jesse, that, you know, you've encountered clinicians with different perspectives on medical cannabis, you'll, uh, you'd undoubtedly find similar heterogeneity in how clinicians view various vitamins and other supplements. And there's plenty of room for differences of opinion among perfectly reasonable people in both those domains because the level of evidence supporting these supplements and the level of evidence supporting medical cannabis is simply not what it is for something like a blood pressure medicine that's you know been fda approved and on the market for years so that doesn't mean that these products uh, should not be recommended and it doesn't even necessarily mean that these products should be regulated and required to have the same level of evidence as all other you know, FDA-approved pharmaceuticals do. Uh, I think most people would agree that would be something to aspire to, but whether to require it 
is a complex policy decision. Where we come from is that is the standpoint that we can create evidence around any of these products with medical cannabis being the one that we've chosen to focus on in, in this collaboration with Leaf, And that that would be a win-win-win uh, for all stakeholders. And that can happen without necessarily having it be an FDA-approved product or FDA regulated product. Uh, and again, you know, I think it's a complex set of policy decisions about whether it or some of these other supplements um, should fall under FDA jurisdiction. Right. You know, one of the, um, the interesting things about cannabis is when I think about a product uh, used for therapeutic purposes, uh, first kind of class that comes to mind are, are prescription medications, pharmaceutical drugs. And they go through this process, having worked in pharmaceuticals for a period of time early in my career, there's a discovery and development phase where they're discovering new molecules. Then they go through preclinical testing for preclinical safety and, and biochemistry. And then they go through, like we said, multiple phases of clinical research. So you have this overwhelming amount of evidence before the product goes to market, right? In the world of cannabis, cannabis is, is, is kind of unique in the fact that because it's naturally occurring, because it, it grows historically freely in, in, in many parts of the world, it's been available and consumed for a very long time, right? So cannabis has been out there long before we were around. People have consumed it in different parts of the world for, for many, many years and have naturally discovered, hey, this really helps with nausea or this really helps with, you know, whatever might be pain or it really helps me sleep. And so... It's almost like it's going through a reverse model at this point where there's this overwhelming amount of, of real world use of cannabis, right? And now we're scientists in the space and clinicians such as yourself are trying to go back and it's in the market. People are consuming it. We're trying to get a deeper understanding of the science and bring some, some clinical evidence uh, to, to support it. But in the meantime, you know, is this really unique or are there other models? Like, are we able to look at real world evidence as as valuable evidence to support like, hey, this has been used by millions of people over a period of time. You know, we talk about cannabis safety. Why do we know that cannabis is safe? Yes, there are some studies that that certainly support cannabis, uh, the safety of cannabis and the low propensity, not no propensity, but low propensity for addiction. But there's just an overwhelming amount of historic use with very little, you know, long-term or acute outcomes that have at least been measured after such a significant amount of historical use. And on the, the flip side, on the beneficial side, you have millions of people that have used it for a historically long period of time. And, and so these areas where we believe cannabis is beneficial, it really originally has derived from just that real world feedback and evidence is that something that is, is there a model or are there other examples or is that something that physicians are able to look at in clinicians and in, in evaluating the potential usefulness of a substance, whether it's specifically cannabis or otherwise? Or how do we look at that? The fact that there's all this real world evidence around cannabis and all this overwhelming feedback. How do we try to make sense of that? You know, as a scientist, I'll push back a little bit on what you characterize as real world evidence, and, and I'll instead characterize it as real world anecdotes. And it's a lot of anecdotes, millions of anecdotes, perhaps. And 
I don't know if all of those anecdotes are favorable, but certainly some of them are. But that's very different than what a scientist would consider to be evidence. That's description of self-reports among carefully selected people who've chosen to use or not use medical cannabis or any other product. And I don't mean this as a uh, opinion that medical cannabis is without benefit. I, in fact, if I held that opinion, I wouldn't be studying it if I, if I right. strongly felt it had no benefits. Instead, um, I'm uncertain, as I think any good scientist uh, who's followed this literature would be as to what the benefits are. I actually think, and I may have mentioned this earlier, I think we actually know more about the safety of cannabis than we do about the benefits from an evidentiary perspective. And I fully agree, it's pretty safe. But I don't think we know very much about uh, uh, what its benefits are compared to nothing. And we certainly don't know anything about what its benefits are in a head-to-head with alternative agents designed to do the same thing. Yeah, those are good points. Uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing about cannabis too is that people use it for a wide variety of different reasons, right? You know, and, and just gathering feedback and serving the amount of patients we serve through our uh, the state regulated programs that we operate within here, a tremendous amount of people that seek cannabis to help them with sleep. Now, that's one of the big categories that we get day in and day out where, to your point, anecdotal feedback from these individuals is that it works wonderfully for them. And uh, they've been able to come off some of the, we'll call it benzos or some of the other drug categories that they were historically prescribed. Pain is another area where we hear a lot of people saying that they've been able to get benefit or relief from pain. Um, anxiety is a big one. So there's there's a number of different, we'll call it therapeutic applications that people use cannabis for. But to me, there are some where you just have such overwhelming evidence that I think let's use using nausea as an example, where, you know, I think at least in our realm, we have so many patients that come in and that have gone through whatever they're going through that causes them severe nausea and just the overwhelming feedback that cannabis absolutely helps relieve their nausea. Sure, not compared against a positive control or a negative control for that example in a clinical study. But uh, overwhelming p- amount of people that will say, you know, I take cannabis and it really helps with my nausea. So I think that that's an example where uh, at least my belief is that, you know, that, yes, cannabis is absolutely effective to nausea. But to your point, how do we quantify that and how do we understand, you know, the, the dose and the individual piece? And dose, I guess that, that brings up a good, good question. So when patients that are consuming cannabis are looking to understand how to, how should they consume it? Should they take it orally? Should they apply it topically? Should they inhale it? What dose should they consume? This seems to be an area when I talk to physicians where there's a lot of confusion. Do you share that confusion? Is there, is there evidence or some of the scientific literature coming out that you think helps guide you? You know, what can you talk about like that? that like I said, that's an, certainly an area of, of, of debate and physicians I've talked to about what information there's to guide on route of administration or dosing within cannabis. Yeah, so there, there's um, sort of two approaches to this issue, Jesse. One would be to try and look at very highly controlled 
regimens, both by medium of delivery and dosage schedule, and say, like, does this particular regimen do better than this other regimen or no regimen, medical cannabis regimen at all? Uh, another approach is to say, in the real world, we're already at a place in 2023 where it's pretty widely available. And it's pretty widely available in a variety of different media and dosage strengths. So should we instead be broadening our lens to a more kind of real world applicability question of does removing barriers and facilitating access and encouraging use to be followed by tailoring of the types of product and the doses, perhaps in consultation with a trained clinician or pharmacist, how does that do among, uh, compared to not doing those things? And that's a kind of real world perspective that we're taking. It's not trying to move away from a scientific question. In fact, it's just asking a specific type of scientific question What's the real world effect of the ways in which people are likely to use this in the real world, but still using principles of randomization and rigorous statistical analyses to try and quantify these effects? Right. Good point. You know, one thing that's uh, I've seen now uh, a lot of companies uh, bringing in platforms to consolidate consumer feedback and insight from their their personal usage. I know that. Cureleaf uh, has an international business with uh, operations in, in several countries in Europe where it's federally legal. And so one of the things we do over there, since it's, it's, it has to be prescribed by a physician um, in the UK, is that we're able to, you know, obviously there are patient clinician follow-ups. Information is gathered. That information is entered into a system. And now you can look at it, start to get uh, some type of statistical significance as you look at a large amount of patients that are brought in that are questioned in the same manner that provide that level of feedback. Often when I think about clinical studies, uh, one of the major tools used, of course, are just patient questionnaires, right? There are a variety of approved and accepted questionnaires that are used in different clinical studies to gather patient feedback on how they're responding to a medication in a unified fashion. And now, like I said, I'm seeing tools pop up in the U.S. where there is so much cannabis used for different therapeutic applications. I mean, is that something that you think there's merit to where we could be, you know, given that so many people are consuming cannabis for therapeutic applications, that that there are ways and approaches where we could just gather what I call, you know, real world evidence or real world anecdote, to, to use your words, but that we could we can collect that feedback in a more scientific manner so that we can actually build some evidence off just the, the massive level of consumption and self self we'll call it help that's happening out there. Yeah, absolutely, Jesse. You know, the pinnacle of evidentiary standards in medicine is to conduct experiments where we use principles of randomization to remove the selection effects that tend to plague other types of population science. But that's not to say that everything needs to be studied in a randomized trial. And it's certainly not to say that there's no value in uh, rigorously conducted observation research. That said, 
collecting the anecdotal reports of a sample of people who might come to a clinician or some other observer to share said reports isn't observational research, or at least not high caliber observational research. Instead, we would wish to compare people who have used medical cannabis and their outcomes to those among people who have not and use the state-of-the-art tools of statistics to try to remove the selection effects that would otherwise plague such a comparison. Can observational studies remove those potential biases and confounders entirely? No, but they can come increasingly close uh, with considerable advances in the fields of causal inference and other domains of statistics. So while we might wish that everything were studied in, in randomized trials, we being certain types of clinicians, that's not realistic either. But we can off, off, often find a, a middle ground where in a world, as you've described, where lots of people are now using it, uh, we could collect data systematically and do our best to ensure that it's an apples to apples comparison versus those who are not using. Yeah, excellent point. You know, one of the things that comes to mind as you mentioned that is that we're not without prescription cannabinoid based medicines, right? There's dronabinol, there's marinol, um, epidiolex is a more recent pharmaceutical preparation of uh, these are individual single single molecules that are cannabinoids that are pr approved prescription drugs that have gone through clinical studies. Yet, at least in the anecdotal feedback I've received, there's a reason, you know, they're, they're not broadly used. I mean, I talked to a lot of physicians and uh, it's not something that you hear that is prescribed very often. And then when you talk to people that come into, at least into our world, into state regulated medical cannabis systems or, or retail locations, many of them at one point or another have tried one or several of these products with at least anecdotally minimal, minimal positive feedback uh, compared to the naturally produced product, which we know has a range of, of, of naturally occurring cannabinoids and, and other potential natural products. What, what has been your own experience with, have, do you have any experience or feedback from prescription cannabinoids? And is there a reason in your mind why uh, the natural version of the product at least is, is much more popular? I won't, I won't say more effective because obviously from a clinician's perspective, that would require clinical evidence to prove that. But I will say more popular amongst patients seeking cannabinoids uh, as a therapy. What's, what's your experience with these prescription-based uh, cannabinoids? Yeah, I, my, my uh, limited experience with them uh, is aligned with what you're saying. Uh, the times that I have tried it for uh, anorexia, you know, lack of appetite or nausea, my patients have not noticed substantial improvements or in one or the other of those symptoms with those prescription products. That in no way, shape or form means that medical cannabis products more broadly that include the range of inputs to those products that you mentioned 
wouldn't be effective for the same symptoms. And like you're saying, people have kind of voted with their feet for one reason or another and said, you know, I'd much rather use these topicals or vape or whatever it is, or edibles. And I'm a believer that there's lots of reasons why those might be more effective. And at the same time, like you also said, we just need the evidence to kind of figure it out. You know, when we, it, when we first hatched the idea for our study, Jesse, as I think you know, it would have been much easier to uh, enroll people. And in fact, we'd probably be done by now uh, if we had started it back in, you know, right after medical cannabis was legalized in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, because relatively few people were using it. And times are different now we're actually struggling to enroll people because one of our criteria to be in the study is that you're not already using either medical or recreational cannabis more than a couple of times a week. So those people uh, among patients with advanced cancers are, are getting to be fewer and further between. And, and that's uh, affecting the rapidity with which that we can generate the evidence because like, We've been saying that the train has sort of left the station in terms of what patients and even some clinicians are doing. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's too far gone to make the use of, of medical cannabis a bit more evidence-based. Yeah, great point. Look, I think um, clinical studies, while they provide a great level of insight and, and, and information that's very valuable, they take a considerable amount of time and they are very expensive, as you know. And so I think that in the meantime, right, while we try to do the scientific work and, and the clinical work that's absolutely necessary, but but costly and slow, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a massive amount of people self-utilizing cannabis and, and, and many of them with positive outcome. Uh, there's a lot of, of course, enthusiasm and excitement when people find relief to something that ails them. And they do something so with, particularly with a natural product, there's a lot of enthusiasm. So we certainly want to support that, I think, and guide them with as much of the evidence as we have today. Well, behind the scenes, we try to do the work to really fill in a lot of the gaps in that research. And I think that's where we're trying to put a lot of, a lot of the effort. And uh, I do believe there's a, a ton of potential in therapeutic cannabis. I'm a big believer in, in, in with what I've seen working in the industry for a period of time. I don't think it's without risk. I certainly think that there are certain patients, particularly patients that suffer from particular mental illness that should probably avoid cannabis. And so I think that uh, a light needs to be shined on that as well. I, I don't advocate for just the broad irresponsible use of cannabis. I, I'm a big believer in the medical applications. But again, I, I think that the industry and in partnering with medical professionals like yourself needs to continue to do the scientific and clinical work to, to really bring that higher level of evidence. So based on that, if you have patients that come to you, maybe they haven't tried cannabis, or maybe they used cannabis when they were younger, you know, in their 20s or something, and now they're reading about cannabis uh, as the kind of the stigma fades away, and they get optimistic about it, and they come to you or one of your peers for advice, how would you advise a patient on how to approach the potential use of medical cannabis in their life? Is there high-level feedback or advice if someone walks in, you know, read that cannabis can help with, I have a lot of nausea, or I'm having difficulty sleeping, or I'm suffering from a lot of pain. I have family members, friends, or I've read that cannabis can really be helpful for this. I haven't used it since I was 20 years old. You know, what? what how would how do clinicians advise patients like that? 
at least in your realm? Yeah, I mean, so again, I am not in the type of clinical practice where I am advising for or against. And I have colleagues who are really, you know, all over the place in terms of their approaches to their patients. Uh, so I don't think I, you know, would be particularly helpful as someone who is speaking to kind of the, the, the state of clinical care around medical cannabis recommendation, um, because it depends where you look. Uh, and there are uh, very understandably some big supporters and some, some opponents. But uh, I think everyone can be made happier with, with greater information uh, generated from the best caliber of science that is realistically applied to this commonly arising clinic. Right. And, and, you know, one of the barriers, of course, was that, you know, there was really a high level of, of federal prohibition, not just about against cannabis, but against cannabis research for a long period of time in this country, where it was really re heavily restricted. And it seems like now that that veil is lifted, we're seeing kind of an explosion of U.S.-based and some of our, our world-class academic and medical institutions research around cannabis. So we, we hopefully will see uh, a lot more scientific findings and results come out of this explosion of U.S. research uh, over the next few years. I know you mentioned this study on, of course, cannabis and palliative care that you're working with Cureleaf on. Has... Are there other studies that you're aware of at UPenn or in Pennsylvania that have studied cannabis now that the kind of veil has lifted, so to say? Yeah, I, mean, I think, I mean, there are a lot of studies ongoing uh, in the worlds of ep epilepsy and, and, and other discrete disorders. None of them that I'm aware of are, are focused on quality of life in the same way that we are, but I do think that the trajectory of publications stemming from rigorously conducted studies in medical cannabis is highly likely to increase and perhaps increase exponentially in the coming years. Agreed. Well, I'm highly encouraged in the work I do day to day with the amount of people we work with through the state regulated program around the potential. One of the goals, of course, is to get more physicians on board and comfortable with whether prescribing or not, certainly advising and guiding their patients on the use of cannabis. One area that I always uh, refuse to advise if, if someone with a serious therapeutic condition seeks my advice on whether they should consume cannabis and they're under the care of a physician for a serious therapeutic state, my advice to them is always that you need to consult with your physician, right? And that's really Really, especially for people going through the types of serious ailments that we're discussing here, I think always the best advice. So the goal would be to provide enough evidence to clinicians that they're comfortable advising on incorporating cannabis into their regimen. And uh, I think that starts with uh, a lot of the great clinical research and scientific work that physicians and professors such as yourself and some of your peers are doing. So uh, we thank you greatly. And uh, any final thoughts or words of wisdom for those of us in the industry working, looking to do this work um, or, or fellows in the medical community around cannabis as it, as it evolves? Uh, you know, just stay tuned. You know, <laughs> I think we're, we're making progress, like you said, and I, I look forward to a future where maybe we could have this discussion again in 10 years and say, look at all the things we can now say with much greater certainty about medical cannabis. 
this than we could back in the days of 2023. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. This 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 industry is evolving very quickly right now. Again, encouraged by the recommendation uh, to move it to Schedule Three, uh, amongst other potential benefits that will certainly further accelerate the ability for academic universities and and medical institutions to study cannabis, uh, which will further that evidence that clinicians are looking for. So, Dr. Halperin, uh, I greatly appreciate your time, the work you're doing in the space, and just your work in general, a very noble cause, and look forward to hosting you again, hopefully, uh, in uh, in five to 10 years and having this conversation again, and, and hopefully seeing how far we've come in that amount of time. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Unraveled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Cannabis Unraveled, head on over to our Instagram, at Cannabis.Unraveled.